Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. I have these conversations with my editor all the time about, you know, when it is we think we're ready to start that first draft. And sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes it can take months. Today, I talked to an investigative reporter who uncovered a troubling form of junk science that police departments and prosecutors across the U.S. were using to arrest and convict people based on what they said during a 911 call. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Brett Murphy is a reporter on ProPublica's National Desk who recently won a George Polk Award for his reporting of a new junk science in the justice system known as 911 call analysis. Prior to joining ProPublica in May 2022, Murphy covered labor, criminal justice, and the federal government for USA Today. Brett, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'd like to find out a little bit about the background of my guests before we, we get too deep into this. So how'd you get involved in journalism? What made you decide you want to be a, a reporter? It was actually my college newspaper where I got my start. I went to the University of Pittsburgh, wrote a bit for the student paper there, Pitt News. At the same time, I uh, started freelancing for some regional publications, some magazines in Pittsburgh. Kind of caught the bug a bit started doing some long form work. And then after I graduated, I went to, went to graduate school and kind of, you know, started, started trying to do some more investigative work out there, learning, learning how to do that type of reporting, really fell in love with it. Right after that started at a small newspaper in Florida, the Naples Daily News. And, you know, from there, I've just been kind of working more and more towards longer form projects and investigations. So what is it you liked about investigative journalism? So I, I don't think I work particularly quickly or fast. <laughs> and investigations kind of offer offer a little more time to understand things. It takes me a while to understand things. And I like to uh, really familiarize myself with the subjects I'm writing about. Otherwise, I feel like I'm, I'm out of my depth. I usually am out of my depth. So investigations gives you that time and space. It also has some stopping power. You can publish. And once in a while, there will be some impact and that I think is really fulfilling. Other parts of journalism certainly have have that as well, but I feel like with investigations, that's often the point, the very point of the story you're doing. So that's another reason why I kind of gravitated towards it. I also really appreciate the rigor of the editing process in investigations. I feel like the editors, co-reporters, everyone else that's involved in production gets as deep into the story as you, the reporter, do. And it's, it's really great to work with teams like that and turn, you know, a, a story or months of reporting into this really kind of like digestible, comprehensive, compelling package that people can read, watch, listen to in a bunch of different ways. So I like that about it, too. So tell me about your writing process, though. I, I know you, you mentioned that your collaboration with maybe other people who are doing research and, and your editor. I mean, at what point do you start thinking about how to assemble something? It totally varies. Sometimes we'll know when we start reporting, you know, this is a quicker thing. It would be good to get something out. You know exactly what it is you want to prove or what it is you need to prove. 
and you know you're just kind of going really hard on that narrow narrow reporting path so sometimes we call them a quicker hit or something often though that's not the case often you're kind of scanning the surface of the ocean only it feels like you're only going a couple inches deep once in a while you find some reporting avenues that you want to really spend a lot of time on and that can take months usually i like to as i'm reporting put my findings put my interviews the documents i'm analyzing into memos or notes for my editor so i'm sort of writing as i'm going that way they're abreast of kind of what it is i have what it is i don't have the story changes you know we can be flexible and take whatever path the evidence of the reporting you know requires and then you know i have these conversations with my editor all the time about you know when it is we think we're ready to start you know that first draft and sometimes it's really quick sometimes it can take months but our patients wait for the evidence before we we start deciding a narrative have you had instances where you began researching a story and either there was no story or there wasn't maybe something that you could report that you felt that you needed to either drop it or go in a different direction? I don't think I've ever outright killed a story that had been, you know, fully greenlit. I think what normally happens is, this is my process, and it might be a little harebrained, but what, what I normally do is I pitch a lot of things at once. So I'll pitch you know, maybe six to 10 possible story ideas. A lot of them are, you know, half-baked. Some of them are more fully baked. But the usual response from an editor is like, you know, let's kick the tires on these three. And then I'll spend maybe a few weeks or maybe even longer, what I call pre-reporting, what people call pre-reporting, which means sort of like a proof of concept. Like, is this thing, is this tip, true is there are there examples of this happening in other places is there other reporting paths to answer you know why this is happening are there are there people or institutions to hold accountable once you start kind of crossing those boxes off and it looks like there's a lot of yes column then something will get greenlit you know in earnest and from there i've never been in a spot where the reporting after after that story is greenlit goes so poorly or things are so different than what I had thought before that we end up killing the story outright. I don't like the word, but we'll pivot a lot of times. We'll pick up, you know, we'll learn something in the reporting that actually is like a better story or a more urgent story to tell. And we'll, we'll report that out. So that happens quite often. And that's just something that I think you have to be flexible with in this line of work. So you came to my attention. You recently participated in a panel about sort of these junk sciences that are in the justice system. And the, and the one that you wrote about for ProPublica, you know, I read the stories and this is fascinating, the 911 call analysis. Can you just sort of give me a broad understanding of what that is and, and how, how you learned about it? Sure. So 911 call analysis is a technique slash discipline that has become really pervasive in the past 10 years or so not only within police departments, but also prosecutors' offices, DAs, coroners, and the like. And basically, it's a school of thought that somebody who calls 911 to report an emergency or to report a crime can actually betray their own involvement in whatever it is they're reporting by certain words that they choose to use, turns of phrases, and then if, uh, you know, the dispatcher, the detective, the prosecutor is trained in the method, 
of 911 call analysis, they can figure out whether or not this person is actually guilty of the crime that they're ostensibly reporting. So these turns of phrases and words can be as simplistic as, you know, saying please in the wrong part of the sentence, using the word just too many times, having too short of answers, having too long of answers. These are the types of things that the training covers for people. It's a weekend training curriculum. I came across it as I was reporting a different story. This is often what happens you know, when I'm on the job is I'll be out in the field. I'll be interviewing folks, learning about new stuff, or I'll be looking at documents from public records requests or things that have been leaked to us, or people will reach out with tips. And I'll sort of file it away as like a, huh, that's weird type of thing. I have like a, you know, a running document of those types of little nuggets. And then when I get some downtime between stories or when I'm, you know, prospecting for my next thing, I'll go take a look at that and what I have there. And so I was reporting my last project at USA Today, I was reporting a series of stories about whistleblower retaliation inside of police departments. And I was down in Louisiana talking with some families who believe their cases had been fumbled or or worse by you know, local DAs or sheriffs or police. And a family down there told me about it, told me about, you know, they were sure that there was a cover-up by the DA and, and their mother hadn't really committed suicide. It had been a murder. And they were sure of this because of this 911 call analysis that the lead detective had applied during his investigation. It didn't sound to me like something that was particularly plausible or something that, you know, less credulous DAs or other departments around the country would pick up, and certainly not judges. I thought a judge would never let it in the courtroom. But when I got to ProPublica, I, you know, I pitched it as a possible story idea. I really didn't have much besides that one tip, had no clue how pervasive it was outside of that one, that one jurisdiction in Louisiana. But because ProPublica has sort of an infrastructure for junk science reporting, a lot of my much more talented colleagues before me have done incredible work in the area, you know, the scaffolding was there. ProPublica was interested in me, as I was saying earlier, kind of kicking the tires to see what else was there. So you got that information and you did, obviously you determined that it was pervasive. How pervasive are we talking about? Is this something that's, you know, across the country? Is it something just in a particular region? I found it in, I, th- I forget what the exact number is, but at least 25 states, I believe, where the method had been applied in some way. And that ranged sort of the gamut from, you know, a a detective was using it as a tool during their investigation all the way up to a judge allowed it as expert testimony in court to be used against somebody accused of murder. It was very widespread in the sense that it was sort of everywhere. It was not geographically centered anywhere. I did find most cases, I think, in the Midwest around the Ohio region. This is where the program had started. You were asking earlier about kind of the founder of the program. He's a hired former deputy chief in Ohio. So there's a lot of departments around there in Michigan who had adopted it where he had done the training, but it was nationwide. He's been teaching it all over the country. Departments and prosecutors have been adopting it as well. Kind of, it seems like more and more over the country. I forget the number that the founder of the program, the architect of the program claims, but it's more than 1,500 homicide cases he says that he's helped solve using his method. So quite widespread, I would say. Yeah. Like you, I was kind of surprised that it would be admissible in court and that a judge would allow 
it as expert testimony? Was it that the founder came in and would talk about it or would they bring somebody else who was trained in it or, or actually maybe even the detective who um, had, had conducted the interview? How did that generally work? Yeah, so he never does. He never testifies himself. I saw emails between prosecutors saying that, you know, he didn't want to open himself up to cross-examination that way. What normally happens is... It's always a good sign. Yeah. And these are the same prosecutors, by the way, who have still chosen to use it themselves by getting a, a person trained by him. This is the way it normally works. A detective or a dispatcher, usually a detective, trained by him to testify in court. Sometimes it's oblique, and I know this from the emails among the prosecutors, they will actively disguise what it is this person is testifying to. They will intentionally make it seem like the testimony of a lay witness rather than expert testimony because they know that in pretty much any jurisdiction, it would not pass what's known as a, a Daubert challenge or a Fry challenge in which an attorney says, hey, I think this is purporting to be experts or scientific testimony, technical testimony. And as such, I think we should actually take a look at, at whether or not this is scientific, what, what the other studies have to say, what the body of research is behind it, whether it's testable. They want to ask those questions in court. And several judges have gone down that road and they've said, no, this is inadmissible because it does not pass those standards. It doesn't meet those standards. But couple cases, they have let it in, sometimes even without one of those hearings. I reported on a case in Michigan where, where that exact thing happened, and the detective was allowed to testify as an expert, which obviously can carry a lot more weight with a jury. It's a very patchwork system, I learned. There's not a lot of guardrails in place, and it's ultimately always up to the judge, individual judges, about what, it, you know, what they allow in and if they're even willing to, to accept a challenge on the admissibility of something. So you've kicked the tires. You've decided this is a story I'm going to report. How do you determine how widespread this is? How do you determine if it's legitimate or, or not? Because the other thing is, you know, the, somebody gave you a tip and said, hey, this is something that we encountered. I mean, in this process, you've got to be able to say, yeah, this doesn't seem to to be a real thing or a scientifically supported thing and, and provide experts on your end saying that to debunk it, I guess. I'll say this. I didn't set out to debunk it. I didn't set out really with a narrative in mind or, you know, any certainty around this. I tried to go in and I, I always try to do this, you know, best I can as open-minded as possible. To me, it, like I was saying earlier, it didn't make a lot of sense to me, but what do I know? You know, as I was saying before, I'm, I'm, I'm always out of my depth with the new subject. I've never reported on this before. I took science in junior high. You know, I think my last class was freshman year biology. I'm never the authority on these things. So the first thing I did was just start looking for the other research around, you know, analyzing speech patterns. I looked at studies from uh, linguists on the topic. And then I talked to those people. I talked to those researchers. I looked at the original studies that the founder had conducted and upon which the training curriculum is based. I shopped those around to other experts, to psychologists statisticians, research methodology experts, anyone who might be able to tell me, you know, is the sound, the way in which these studies were conducted, is it valid? Does it pass the smell test for you? Is it okay to use this in real world situations that are as high stakes as a murder investigation? Is it okay? It's just an exploratory analysis, something that 
you know, might open the door for more academic research. These are the sorts of questions that I was going to actual experts with, again, with as open-minded as I could, and, you know, said, I'm genuinely interested in what you think. And then when I heard, what I heard back was a consensus. The consensus was, this is scientifically baseless to use this method in the real world. It may be perfectly okay to study as an academic exercise, as many things are, but they drew a line in the concrete around actually using it in the real world because, as I was saying, none of the findings of the original study could be replicated with any certainty or any repeatability that that would suggest you know that this is valid or sound. So once I had that kind of basic information around the you know the experts' concerns over this, then the question was, okay, how how much is it actually being used? How pervasive is this thing? How deep does it go? Is it going all the way to the courtroom? That was mostly a public records exercise. I sent, I forget how many, but several hundred records requests around the country trying to answer this question. You know, is it being used in investigations? Is it being adopted by prosecutors? I was getting police reports, email correspondence between prosecutors and detectives. I was, of course, looking at court transcripts, all of that. It's never easy to come up with an accounting of cases of a particular type or flavor in the court system because, as you know, the criminal courts, around the country, you know, murders are, are usually violations of state law. That means it's being tried in state court. There's not a one-stop shop clearinghouse for all, for all those cases. So we had to go, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction once we, once we learned that the training had been conducted there, or once we learned that the departments or prosecutors were using 911 call analysis in those spots. Were you able to interview anybody who was actually doing the training or had been trained? Yeah, I did. I talked to a couple and their explanations of the whole thing kind of, you know, vary quite a bit. But most of the ones I talked to, you know, they said, listen, this is a, it's not the be all end all. It doesn't answer, you know, this question for you. Rather, it's, it's just an investigative tool. It's another tool in the toolbox. That was the most common metaphor that they would use. Others were surprised to learn about the other research that had called into question its validity. But most who were willing to chat about it said that bit about the toolbox, I think. If I'm in court being tried for murder or whatever, that's not a type of thing I want to hear, that it's not the end-all and be-all, but we're going to use it to prosecute you. It's problematic. Yeah, and and that's what the people I talked to on the other side said. You know, they were sitting there in the courtroom. They were accused of murdering their brother. There's a 16-year-old kid accused of murdering his brother when he said he shot him by accident. There were mothers accused of killing their babies when, you know, they said it was a case of SIDS or a rollover or something like that. And they had to hear their words on a 911 call, you know, often the most traumatic moment of their life. They had to hear their words dissected in front of the courtroom and say, you know, this person is faking it. This person is staging this call. And I know this because of X, Y, Z. That was really troubling to a lot of people. That stuck with them long after trial. So I think you're right. So you write the story and, and, you know, at the very beginning, you said that one of the reasons you like doing investigative journalism is that you have something that has impact. Um, You know, when you wrote your story, was there impact? Were there consequences or changes that this brought about? There weren't marches in the street or anything. And, you know, it wasn't the lead story on CNN for weeks. But I think so. I think that I heard from judges, DAs, which was refreshing, police brass around the country said that they hadn't heard about this and, you know, they're going to take a look at their own policies and practices to make sure they're not using it. They're going to do case reviews. 
about it. So that kind of impact matters quite a bit, or I like to think it does anyway. They said, this is not something that we want to use or not something that we want to rely on in a way that could ultimately uh, wrongfully convict someone. The other thing, the more acute thing that happened is we had written about, you know, extensively about one case in particular, a woman named Jessica Logan, who was convicted of killing her her son, her baby, a couple of years ago. And 911 call analysis was an important part of that case, it came up in, in her trial as well. Some attorneys from the Exoneration Project and another group have reached out to represent her in her appeal and the state Supreme Court agreed to take another look at the case as well after we published. So that's a more kind of acute, uh, I guess, if you could call it impact from the reporting. Yeah. So is this a story that you think, I mean, most of our listeners here are working journalism. Some of them are local journalists. Is this something that maybe people should check out with the jurisdiction that they're covering, that this is something that's prevalent? I think so. I think it's much more widespread than I first thought. But it's not just this. It's so many similarly questionable or dubious investigatory techniques adopted by police departments and prosecutors. I think it it might be worthwhile for journalists to request the training modules that local law enforcement has adopted. They can look at the personnel files of detectives. They can request their prosecutors, their DA's emails that are non-work product or attorney-client privilege to look at some of these conversations as well to see how, you know, how law enforcement and their communities are thinking about evidence, about the standards of evidence, about what's scientific. It's a, it's a question that's been around for a long time. And I think there's always new programs and new tools and, and new junk science that's percolating uh, really often. So it's a, it's a really fruitful ground for reporting. Yeah, I agree. Especially when you think about if you're covering a local community, which I happen to do, you know, a lot of times what we've been hearing in the last you know couple of years is how short-staffed the police are, how taxed they are for resources. So I, that's an that's environment that needs to. Yeah, that's not new. Yeah, that's, that's not the yeah. last couple of years. That's oh, I don't believe. Yeah, I don't believe. Yeah, yeah I don't. Yeah. I'm just saying that if that is expressed to you, then you know, to me, that says, well, that's a an environment where. Some people, I don't want to say necessarily shortcuts, but if they see something that's getting them success, whether it's proven or not, maybe more susceptible to do that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Yep. The other thing I want to talk to you about is that you co-founded a newsletter called uh, Local Matters. Tell me about that. How'd that come about? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you that you brought that up. I'm really proud of uh, that newsletter. So, geez, I guess five years ago now. My friend and I at the time and a third colleague of ours started the newsletter. The three of us were all reporters at the Naples Daily News, and it was Joe Craney's idea. He's at the Times Pick now in in New Orleans. And we pretty much just, you know, thought that there's so much great, important local investigative journalism happening every week that most of the country doesn't know about. You know, most people just think of, I think, the media as national cable outlets and the biggest story coming out of like Washington or the New York Times or something. But really, there's all this fantastic journalism happening by local reporters such as yourself. And we wanted to highlight that and promote it and share it with not only journalists, but people who are just interested in the media as well as a way to, you know, call attention to all that great work that's happening. So the way we did it and the way we still do it is we read 
front pages of newspapers in every state every week. And then we field submissions. We look online for you know digital media outlets and, and radio and such. And we curate that into a list somewhere between you know eight and 15 stories every week. And we just kind of write a, a quick blurb with a link and a premium on the reporter byline saying, you know, this is what the story is about. Here's the link to it. You should read it kind of thing. And we just send that around as a, as a short little uh, curation. And it's been really popular. You know, we, we have, uh, I think, almost 7,000 subscribers now and a couple of sponsors. And it's, it's a lot of fun. We love doing it. And it's great that you've been doing it for so long. I think people get with these startups, they do them for a little while. But the fact is you built something that you recognize that they're, you know, it's worthwhile to, you know, share this information for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is, you know, the concerns people have about how and what's happening around the country is, you know, as publications shut down and as journalists get laid off, this concern about a lot of the important work that journalists do is sort of going by the byway. So the fact that you, for five years, you guys, guys have been able to identify seven or eight investigative stories a week, I think says a lot that there's still a lot of good blood going on in our industry. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And, you know, we were, it's been pro bono for years. You know, we, we didn't set out to make money off of this. It was really just something like we cared about, you know, pretty deeply and we want to do on our own time. And I think that's why we've kind of been able to stick with it for so long because there was never a, uh, an ROI to think about here. It was just about getting that work out. Yeah, I can relate to that. We've yeah. been doing this podcast for 11 years for no other reason, just that we think that there's a lot of good things going on that need to be shared. There are things sometimes that you need to discuss that are concerning, but you know, there's still a lot of exciting things going on in journalism. So any chance to, to shed some yeah. light on Anyway, exactly. Brett, this has been fascinating. We're going to have a link to the 911 analysis story or stories. It's a couple of different stories. You know, thanks for coming on the podcast. This is great. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. I had a great time. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>